Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferentz.com slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 78. Fun interview today with songwriter and music exec Jason Davis. We get into everything from songwriting to how to grab the attention of record labels. Be sure to stick around to the end for some great tips on how to get the best out of co-writes, when having a publishing deal can be the most beneficial to you, and the power of a unique song title. Before all that, I wanted to talk about focusing on your intentions versus focusing on your expectations. What do I mean by that? If you've been listening to this show for a while, you've heard me bring up inputs versus outputs multiple times. This is a bit of a script flip on that concept. Think about what you can control when you set out to work on a project. You can control what you intend to do. Stuff like the amount of work you put in, the quality of that work, where you want to focus your energy, etc. These are your intentions. Example, when you work on a record, you set out with the intention to make a great piece of art and put that out into the world. Now, let's look at that from the expectations point of view. Expectations are fulfilled by outcomes, and outcomes, as we've discussed in the past, are out of your control. So when you work on a record, you probably don't expect it to go number one, and if you are expecting that, you're likely being regularly disappointed, unless, of course, you're an artist like Taylor Swift or Beyonce. Now, if you haven't caught it yet, the difference between focusing on your intentions versus your expectations is that one of them is energizing, and the other one is more than likely self-defeating. The best part about focusing on your intentions is that it pushes your brain to solve the problem. Now, of course, some people would argue that you can manifest an outcome. I would not be one of those people. As much as I'd like to sit in my backyard drinking a beer, expecting to have a million dollars, it's just not going to happen. On the flip side, if you're focusing on the outcome too much and building up your expectations, you're not letting your brain connect the dots and work out the way to get there. You've got to work backwards and focus on the steps that you need to take to get to that potential outcome. Note, potential, not guaranteed. Now, of course, this is where you might say, Travis, if I focus on the outcome and work backwards to the next steps, then why do I need to worry about my intentions? And my response to that is, working backwards to the next steps is finding the intention. So just skip the expectations and think about what you're setting out to do. It will put you in the mindset of working to solve the puzzle of how to get where you want to go. Remember, we trick our brains all the time, and they trick us just as much. If you constantly tell yourself that some magical expectation is going to be met, I guarantee that you'll believe yourself, and then you're probably going to be let down. And that's when your brain is going to jump in with a little, see, I told you you suck. That's harsh, but it's true. So many of us have had our self-doubt reinforced by our own letdown expectations. You may think you're not as great a songwriter as you are because you never get the lead single. You may think you're not as good a mixer as you are because the labels don't call you constantly. I can go on longer, but I'll let you fill in your favorite limiting belief for yourself. So now let's get back to intentions. If you're driven by your intention to write a great chorus, 
or do an amazing mix or whatever it is, then fulfilling your expectations doesn't matter. You'll be fulfilled by the work you put in. So if your intentions are what matters, then all of a sudden it's much harder to be let down. You put the work in on what you can control. You did the best you could do. Now, all you can do is see if it resonates with people. By focusing on your intentions and not on your expectations, you can eliminate a lot of the self-doubt that most everybody in the music industry has. It's the first step in breaking that cycle of disappointments, reaffirming your own limiting beliefs. And it's a huge part of shaping your career into what you want it to be, and ultimately being happier and more successful. Quick note before the episode continues, our past guest, Dr. Susan Rogers' book is finally out. We talked about it a lot back in episode 58, and it wasn't due out for months, so I just wanted to remind people about it now that it's out. I really enjoyed my conversation with her. If you haven't heard it, definitely check that out and her book, which is called This Is What It Sounds Like, What the Music You Love Says About You. Link in the show notes to all of that. Today's guest is hit songwriter turned entrepreneur and music executive Jason Davis. Jason wrote his first number one song at age 23, which led him to work with artists such as Boys to Men, Sugar Ray, P. Diddy, Alabama, Lone Star, and Dolly Parton. Since then, he's worked as senior VP of A&R for CTK Management, president of an independent record label, written a couple books, and even executive produced for television. Currently, he's focused on his work with 117 and Noble Management, both companies that he's co-founded. So lots of stuff to talk about today. Welcome to the show, Jason Davis. What's up, Jason? How are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad we, we got connected. Are you, you're in Nashville, I'm, I think? Yeah, I split time between Nashville and Florida. Our most of our staff is in Nashville, and I have an office in Nashville. And then I also have an office in Florida where we have a few people from our staff uh, here as well. So I kind of go back and forth. Cool. Great. Uh, so, you know, the way we usually kind of dig into these things is I'm always curious how people got sucked into music. Like, what's your, what's your musical origin story? Went to uh, my first concert when I was 12 years old. It was uh, David Lee Roth when he had left Van Halen. Epic. And it was a pretty crazy concert. And um, me and my friends down the street, we um, got wiffle ball bats and we tied string around them. And we would uh, play the David Lee Roth cassette tape uh, for, on his first album and run around his parents' basement pretending we were in a band. And then uh, his parents saw that, and for Christmas that year, they bought him a pink BC Rich electric guitar, uh, one of those 80s rock guitars. And my uh, friend down the street called me up, I think I was 13, 14, and he said, you have to come down here immediately. It was on Christmas. And I ran down the street to his house and walked into his bedroom, and it was like angels started singing to me. I saw the guitar, and... That first day I said to him, I was like, we have to write a song. And he didn't even know how to play it. So he was just banging the strings and we were just making up lyrics. And <laughs> that's kind of how, how the whole band songwriting thing started. And we were, of course, we were really bad. I have to throw that in there. <laughs> I mean, I think it's implied everybody's uh, first middle school, high school, elementary school band uh, is just an epic disaster. It's, it's beautiful. It's the way it should be. <laughs> Are you, uh, I'm guessing you're a singer as well, if you're also a songwriter. Well, I was always a singer in different bands. I was never a great singer. I never took vocal lessons. I took one vocal lesson in my whole life. I was never technically good, but I did sing with a lot of emotion and passion. And when I was making demos for whatever age we were at, they were 
somewhat passable. Um, and even when I broke in as a songwriter, uh, I was always singing my own demos. And, you know, with, with the invention of uh, auto-tune and, and technology, I was able to sound at least passable enough that I could sell sell a song to somebody and somebody would get what the song was. Yeah. But I was, I was never a great singer. Uh, I loved singing. We did play shows when I was younger. So uh, we did book shows and play concerts and stuff. But uh, I was never never a great singer, but was technically a singer in some bands when I was younger. <laughs> it happened. Singing happened. Well, you mentioned that the first thing you said when you saw the guitar was, we got to write a song. So you obviously, wanting to write music and, and write a song is probably, it's deep inside of you. How did you decide that that's what you wanted to do with your life? I just, it, it just always was there. I mean, ever since I was a kid, the first pictures of me that my parents have, I'm carrying around a little plastic Mickey Mouse guitar. I used to bring the plastic Mickey Mouse guitar to the dinner table. I, I just really, God placed it in me and it was definitely what I was supposed to do with my life. But that passion was always there. And, um, again, the first time I was ever sitting in a room with a friend who had an instrument was that Christmas day. And my first instinct was I wanted to write a song and we literally were trying to write a song that day. <laughs> so it was just kind of something that was always there. Not too long ago, a few years ago, I reconnected with, uh, my best childhood friend that I literally was like almost born with. And, um, he reminded me, I, I had forgotten about this, but he reminded me that when, when we were five, we wrote a song together and, uh, he actually remembered the song word for word. So, uh, it's, it's just something that's literally been there since birth. That's amazing. Well, here's an interesting question. I feel like in today's world, a lot of people know that songwriters exist. Like everybody knows who, who's writing Katy Perry songs and stuff. It seems to be way more open, but back then... Did you know that being a songwriter was a job option? No, I, I didn't even realize that there really was songwriters. I thought there was just bands and artists. So all the artists I loved as a kid, I just thought the songs probably came from them. Yeah. And not, not to say it didn't partially come from them, but uh, I didn't realize that there was this whole... I knew there was producers. I knew you went into studios and made music, but I didn't realize people were writing songs with artists or for artists. Right. So uh, then let's talk about when songwriting becomes your job. When it was early 20s, if I remember from reading some info, you got discovered as a writer and, and kind of landed a hit, right? Yeah, I'd been writing just as a hobby. It, I mean, I never dreamed or thought that I could get into music. I didn't think that was something regular people could even do. So it was just always like my passion, my hobby. It was what I did when I would get home from school what I did when I would get home from work when I got older. But, you know, I had been writing for 10 years. And when you write, when you do anything for 10 years, you start getting, you know, pretty good at it. And um, I got good enough at it that I eventually wrote one song that was really right. And uh, I had probably written somewhere in the neighborhood of 350 songs at that point when I wrote that song. I think I was 23. And I just somehow knew it when I wrote the song. And I always had these inclinations, like maybe there's something to it, or man, this one feels really good, or this one feels special. When I wrote that song, I didn't think it would do anything, but it was the best song I'd ever written. And I knew it was very set apart. 
And um, I called up a friend of mine at the time and asked if we could record it in his parents' house. He had some recording gear. And that recording kind of became popular in my area where I lived. That's cool. People just started sharing it with each other. And everybody knew that I always made music and was in bands. And people just started sharing it. And it literally, before the internet, it traveled and landed on the desk about 1,400 miles away from where I lived with a head of A&R, a guy named Grant Cunningham. He worked for a label called Sparrow Records out of Nashville, which is today, that's Capital Records Christian label, Capital Christian. Okay. And it landed on, it basically landed on his desk through a relationship he had. And um, next thing you know, I had a song on a record. And miraculously after that, there was uh, another label in the Latin market that had heard some songs I wrote on a different artist and wanted a few more of my songs on a record. So within the first six months, I the doors opened. It was just basically these two different A&Rs hearing songs I wrote and placing them on records. That's amazing. Yeah, it really is. Do you know how uh, Grant got that demo? Yeah, there was a Christian band at the time that was very popular. It was kind of a newer, hotter band called Burlap to Cashmere. A lot of people in Christian music still know them. And they, they kind of were, were around for a very short period of time. Their first record did well, and the band was in the process of breaking up. And one of the guys in the band was trying to get a solo deal. And he ended up recording with that guy that I knew. Um, and I didn't realize this, but the guy that I knew that I recorded with, he was showing my song and demo as kind of an example of like what he could do for you if you showed up at his studio. Uh, nice, nice. And I, I didn't know that he was using it as an example. It's great that he was. But uh, so as he, he showed it to this guy that was in this band as an example, like, hey, this is kind of the sounds I could get. This is an example of something I've done. And the guy was like, can I put that song on my demo? And so that that's how that happened. That's very cool. That's, well, thank God he was doing that, right? Yes. So you had no professional songwriter experience at this point. How did you sort out the business end of this? Because it sounds like things were happening really quick. Did you have anybody help you out? Like, hey, you're going to need to register with these PROs. You're going to want to not give this away. Were you even familiar with some of that stuff? I had no knowledge at all. <laughs> Thankfully, the A&R guy at the label called me. He probably called me on three or four different occasions during that whole six-month season. And he told me, he's like, you know, you have to call at the time, he recommended ASCAP to me. He's like, you have to call ASCAP and tell them you want to register as a songwriter. And do you have a publishing company? And I said, no, I'm not with a publishing company. And I just figured, like, well, I'll just make my own, you know, because I'm not with one. Right. So it was definitely directed from the label that I needed to do those things. And there was definitely uh, some discrepancies with, like, the artist eventually wanted some writing credit on the song they had changed probably somewhere in the neighborhood of i don't know five to ten words like a few lines in the song were lyrically tweaked and they wanted writing credit so th there was a little bit of a I, I just i never knew that people could come in and take a part of your song and uh so that got a little a, a little weird just because <laughs> i had no experience but it it all worked out, thank God. Yeah, so. that's cool. That's cool. So then at that point, 
did you have people offering you publishing deals? I feel like that's kind of one of the triggers. If you, you get a, a good cut, everybody's just starts calling, right? Yeah, at the time, because uh, I landed in those first six months, I landed seven songs wow. on records. Nice, very good. In the first six months and ended up getting a meeting with a guy who's still in the publishing world, uh, a guy named Eric Beal. At the time, he was uh, over at Zamba Publishing. So I ended up going into Zamba, which is a really hot publisher of that time, and met with him. But you know, where I was at as a writer, I wasn't a huge writer. The amount of money that they were talking about was seemed really small in comparison to what I believed I was going to make off of the success of that first song. So I just kind of blew it off and oh, just kept doing my own thing. Nice. See, that's the thing that I always tell people, like, as long as you can hold on to that stuff and put yourself in a better negotiating situation, the better off you're going to be in the end. It's just you have to be able to execute on the, you know, the technicals and the business side and make sure that you're going to actually get all your money. But keep ownership as long as you can, you know, till somebody really brings value to you. Yeah, I think, you know, if it had been a monstrous song or, you know, I think the offers probably would have been higher, but it just, I had already started receiving checks for the song. It just didn't seem worth it. Yeah. And, and actually around that time, I forgot about this. I had met a manager that was like managing dance artists, but doing it at a really high level, a guy named Gary Salzman. I don't know if he's still in the business. It probably isn't, but he was pretty big at that time. And um, I remember I got a meeting with him and uh, in the beginning, and he told me, he's like, whatever you do, don't sign a publishing deal unless you need the money. And uh, so that was kind of in my head at that moment, too. So when Zama was talking about numbers, it just seemed very small. So, Well, that, that kind of brings me to one of my questions, which is, um, do you have any advice for young writers or young artists that are, are putting their own music out? about publishing deals and like when they can really come into play and when they can be helpful and maybe things that might be red flags when you're getting offered some of these deals? I think it just depends where you're at. For me personally, I was always very entrepreneurial. I was already starting to meet artists uh, and was starting to feel like maybe I was leaning more towards management than even writing at that time. Okay. So I don't really know if I saw... Even though I was lending a lot of songs, I didn't see my long-term future as a writer. It's another reason why I wasn't that um, interested in the Zamba meeting. But I think if you want to be a writer long-term and you are offered a publishing deal and it's from a hot publisher that's really, really in the mix of the genre that you want to be in, I do think that's a really good situation because they will get you into rights and they will get you with artists. And it's harder to get in with the bigger artists because usually when you have an artist that's established, the manager of that artist is usually not going to want, is going to be very precious with their artist time. So if it's a newer writer, they're going to be a little bit more hesitant to allow a big artist into the room with a newer writer, unless that writer is on fire. So, but you know, getting in with signed artists and artists that are on labels or artists that labels are looking to sign or thinking of signing. I think if you're with a publishing company that's hot, they could give you a tremendous amount of help with that. That's amazing. 
Yeah, I always go back and forth. It's like, for me, you really want to work with somebody that, like you said, is going to put you in the rooms you want to be in. But then you also like, you really have to have somebody that believes in what you're doing. Because if you're just getting signed because you got like 10% of some pop song because you were over there and you threw a couple words out, like you're going to get tossed down to the A&R guy that's like, oh, who's this person? Okay, yeah, sure. Here's some tracks to write to. Mm. But yeah, it really is about like finding the thing that's missing from your, you know, your team when it comes to like pairing up with people. Yeah, that, that's actually a really good point that you just made. I feel like most of the writers I deal with today, most of them are higher level writers. And most of the friendships I have are with higher level writers. And I've helped a few writers get publishing deals in recent years, but they've always kind of gotten signed where everyone really believes in them. And so you just see them getting into a lot of rooms. Yeah. But um, that point you made is very real. It's a good point. Yeah, I, I used to do, I, I talk about this on the show all the time. I did so many engineering sessions for writers. I worked basically almost worked for publishing companies. I did so many of them. But so many of these younger people, they come in and they're like using the studio time and they're like racking up a bill, you know, to do their demos. But then you don't see like the people that are really successful aren't coming in and racking up the bill in the studio. It's just like, oh, you just really have to be aware of what you're getting into on some of these situations. The Like the excitement can hurt you a little bit. Yes. Yes. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button, and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. So you mentioned that you kind of felt like songwriting wasn't going to be the long-term thing for you, and you kind of had this, like, interest in management. When did you start to explore that? I think I, you know, I realized, you know, I was musically limited. I only played six chords on the guitar <laughs> and I wrote, you know, almost every song I wrote had the same chords. I viewed it as a miracle that I was landing anything that I'd written in the past on albums. And I, when the door cracked open, all the songs that landed on records were previous songs that I had written before the door opened. And so once the door opened, like I was pitching these older demos I had and, you know, seven of them landed, but I was taking the, all the cream off the top of 10 years of writing. And after those seven songs landed, I realized I had nothing else. And so I spent those first six months writing my literal brains out, trying to get more cream at the top to pitch. Right. And, and it, it just really wasn't coming easily or quickly. And I realized that the only chance that I had to get more songs like that was to really dive into co-writing. And I just was never that excited about co-writing. I, I did do co-writing with certain friends and some people I met along the way, but I just never personally, I just never enjoyed it. It's never why I wrote songs. I always wrote songs because it was therapeutic for me. Yeah. And I was never writing thinking I was going to be in music. I was just writing because it was my love and hobby. 
So the second it became serious and I realized to make a living, I have to reproduce this. I realized to reproduce this, I'm going to have to write with other people. And that's kind of, I don't know, just it didn't feel authentic to why I got into it. Yeah. And uh, when I started meeting with labels, pitching my songs, I realized that there was as wide open of a lane for me to pitch artists too. And getting into labels was probably what I found to be the most exciting part of what I was doing. I can't tell you fully why walking into record labels excited me so much, (laughs) but it just really excited me. And I wanted to be in those meetings and I wanted to get into those buildings and I wanted to know the A&Rs and it just excited me. So I realized the way into the building more was to look for artists. And um, I found when I was meeting artists, it was almost like I was getting to look at myself before the door cracked open. And I was like, I, I really have always felt when I meet artists, like I'm really seeing myself in them. And I sit back and I'm like, how did me, who was never a great singer, I knew six chords on the guitar. I was never a great songwriter. I, you know, I, I, I was good, but I was never amazing. How the heck am I, like, how did this happen for me? Like, I'm so not worthy of this happening, but yet it did. Yeah. And I'm in it and I don't deserve to be musically, but I, I was allowed to be in it. And so when I meet these singers or these artists, I feel so passionate about them because it's like, man, I can see that they're better than I was. You know, I, when I meet, you know, a 20 something year old singer today or a teen singer or whatever, 30 year old singer, I can hear that they're better than me. I could hear that they're more talented than me. So I always have this thought of like, if this could happen for me, why can't it happen for them? And uh, it's like all these dreams that I never even knew I could dream came true in my life. It's a lot of hard work. I'm I'm always exhausted, but um, <laughs> it's it's like I, I had all these dreams happen, and it's like I meet these singers. I'm like, man, I want this to happen for them because they deserve it more than me. Right. Um, so I don't know. Just just working with singers and artists became like my my ultimate like true love over songwriting if that makes sense yeah no that that makes total sense it is funny there's like there's something about like you said you don't understand why walking into record labels is so exciting i think when you're a musician like they are i don't know they're like the magical like castle up on the hill you know and when somebody invites you over it doesn't matter what the record label is it could be like the indie one down the street that signs like the local high school bands, but still like when you walk in there <laughs> to like drop off your CD, you're like, I'm inside of of neighborhood records. I'm going to make it. It's, it's just like, yeah, it's exciting. I mean, I worked at uh, Capitol Records for a long time and I remember the first time I walked in there, I was like, wow. It's, you know, it's just a building. Was that in Hollywood? In LA, yeah, yeah. What, when was that? Um, I worked in the studios there from, well, twice for eight years, but mostly from like 2010 to like 2015, 16. Okay. Yeah. Man, I, that that was right after I lived in LA, but I used to be in Hollywood. I don't know if you remember this, but there was a guy named Andy Slater. I was there during Andy's time. Okay. Yeah. So, so actually I was always, I was in that Capitol Records building probably one or two times a week, every week for about four years during the time Andy Slater was there. Yeah, I feel like it was uh, Andy Slater and Jason Flom were there, but they, Katy Perry just like brought that building back to life. I remember when 
when she was like the new thing and like she blew up and it was like that totally changed the trajectory of Capital at the time because they were in a different, you know, they they needed a Katy Perry at that point, I think. Yeah, I think it was a little bit before that that I was going in there, but um, there was an A&R that was a staff producer named Roy Hamilton that I used to manage. Okay. And then there was an A&R named Darius Jones who was in the urban side of things and him and I did all kinds of stuff together. So um, I was in there all the time. W- what a cool building. Oh, it's a great building. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's actually closed right now for earthquake retrofit. It's kind of sad. Did you ever, I'm assuming you know this, but do you know why they always had a security guard sitting outside the front entrance of the building? Do, do you know why they would do that? No, I, I mean, not specifically. No, I just assumed it was general security. You know, you, you had the front entrance, but you also had the back entrance. Yeah. So the front entrance, I uh, got to know the security guard really well because he would sit outside the building, mm-hmm. like yeah. in a chair outside, like in the environment, you know, before you walk in the building. Yes. Yeah. With a list of names. Yeah. Yeah. And I asked him one day, I was like, how come you sit outside? Like, how come you're not inside? And he goes, oh, because one day, I guess some disgruntled rappers who had gotten dropped from a record deal drove by the building and like shot out the whole front of the building. Yes. And uh, years ago, and I was like, wow. So anyway. Yes, there were, uh, when I started there, there there was a bullet hole still in the, uh, like the front desk, which got swapped out eventually. But yeah. Crazy. It's uh, Hollywood, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I had a couple of questions since we're kind of talking management, pitching songs. Do you have any advice for artists that are, trying to get a deal like i know you built a lot of relationships with the labels you probably pitched a lot of artists and had a lot of meetings like what kind of things did you find labels found appealing in artists i mean obviously like tiktok numbers are going to go into play now it's going to be like you know different but like as a musical artist what was like the thing that labels were into that kind of was like ah yes this person has a thing i mean for me it's always been different we had a girl this girl named king's uh, two years ago, a pop artist, she got a deal. We were developing her. She ended up having, getting, at the time, actually, it was 4 million TikTok followers. And we worked on a single with her. We put it out on TikTok, and it it went, you know, semi-viral. Right. Not massive, but semi-viral. And a label found it through that. So she got a record deal through that. There's a girl that we developed named SFX, who's a pop artist, 17 years old from Hawaii that got a deal about three months ago. And we actually were developing her, got her a good song. And before we even released the song, we were just submitting it to a bunch of streaming playlists and song contests and all kinds of places to try to get it some traction when it came out. And uh, through one of those song contests, she got a deal before the song even was put out. Nice. It was a really good song. She's a great singer. Then I, I we had two artists, actually. Both of these are Christian artists, got deals uh, in the last three months. And both of them were just me putting them in with really good writers and good songs came out of the writing sessions. And those writers are signed to labels. And the writers went to the heads of A&R and said, hey, I did this right. You got to check this artist out. And then, um, you know, once I had that, kind of crack in the door i went to different labels and started talking about the artist and so i've kind of seen it 
happen almost every way it could happen. Yeah. But I'm a music purist. I'm all about, you know, try to make your voice as great as it could possibly be. Try to work as hard as you possibly can on your vocal to be unique and powerful and in control and, you know, try to really dominate your instrument and, yeah. and uh, just trying to get great songs like unique titles, unique concepts, like a unique lyric, something I've never, I've never heard that in a song before. So I'm a music purist where I just believe like if you've got the right vocal and you could get a song that feels special and set apart, especially lyrically, has something a little different, unique about it. I don't know. I just think that people in the music industry love music and we all got into this because we love music. So if you hear a, a singer that's crazy and you hear a song that feels crazy, I just I have a hard time believing that that's not eventually going to get a deal somewhere. I believe that. I I believe that authentic music that is, you know, good will eventually rise to maybe not the top, maybe not like you're not going to be the biggest artist in the world, but like the people that will resonate with that artist, eventually they'll find it, you know, and you'll have whatever size community you have if you're making good music from an authentic place. But I wanted to I wanted to jump back to the kind of like the side door that you mentioned. I've never talked about it on the show, but it's totally a, a trick that you just kind of skimmed over is getting a young artist or an unsigned writer in a room with somebody that's hot who you know is going to be playing that for other people and it's like how you can almost drum up interest in an artist in a writer like so if you're you know aspiring producer and like your best friend is a killer top liner who's got a pub deal you should be doing a ton of tracks with your friend <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> because you too can have a big cut and a pub deal you will get a pub deal if you do that yeah yeah, but yeah, it's it's people are always like, well, how do I get somebody to hear my music? I'm like, well, who are you working with that they're listening to their music? Go hang out with that person. Yeah. So I'm glad you highlighted that. But I wanted to kind of shift because you. it sounds like you do a lot of artist development work in pitching artists. Your experience as a songwriter, I would imagine, is an advantage for you because you can look at a person who's got a really amazing voice and like a really amazing vibe and be like, you know what you need? is you just need one song to go with this package that you've already created. Are you willing to get in a room with these two people and try something? Can you talk a little bit about your artist development approach when it comes to like a young artist that hasn't really totally discovered themselves, but has a thing? Yeah. I, I mean, to me, what I do is I spend a really long time trying to be patient and push first to try to get their voice to be special. Because what I've learned is if you're a singer and you walk into a studio with a hot producer or a hot songwriter, and most songwriters, not all, but most songwriters are cutting their own demos these days. True. So if you're in the room with a hot songwriter and you're in the room with a hot producer, one of the biggest ways that you're going to get their attention is by if you can really shock them when you get on their microphone. And whether that's your tone or your approach or just your technicality, like, so when I am working with a singer, to me, one of the biggest things is got to be patient because everybody wants to rush in the studio. Everybody wants to rush to Disneyland. That's right. And it's like, but, you know, if you're getting in the room with a really good person, that's an opportunity to blow their head off. So to me... Everything's about, in the beginning, like, how great can this singer become? 
And if that means we wait a year, if that means we wait two years, if that means we wait six months, whatever it means, like to make sure that they're vocally, in a worst case scenario, competitive. Best case scenario might be able to impress some people in a room. Right. And then I also, too, during that time period of, of kind of waiting, I usually make artists dig hard for song titles. I mean, if you think about it, you know, you think about, you, you mentioned Katy Perry. If you take I Kissed a Girl and you call it I Have a Crush on You, it's just, it's not the same level hit song. No. It probably would have been a minor hit song, but it wouldn't be a career-defining, career-making, ceiling-breaking song. True. It's solely because of the title, you know, that, that it went to that level. And so, you know, you look at, like, Shania Twain's first real breakthrough single as a country artist was Whose Bed Have Your Boots Been Under? I mean, that's an unbelievable title. It's good. And, and I know that's not always the case. I know you don't have to have a, a groundbreaking title, but artists should be digging for that because who knows what you could come up with. I mean, if you're a singer and you live in the middle of nowhere in Texas and you have a dream that you want to be a singer, if you come up with a title like Whose Bed Have Your Boots Been Under or, you know, I Kissed a Girl and, and that's never been done before – Man, you get in the room with the right songwriters, they're going to be massively impressed that you walked in with an idea like that. Yeah. And the the odds of you walking out with a really good song go up a lot because now what you've done is you've walked into a room with very talented people who do this every day and you've raised the level of inspiration in the room. You've taken very talented people and you've internally excited them. And so now they're writing from a very different place. They're writing from a place of excitement and passion and, and inspiration because you walked in with, you know, who's better your boots been under and they've never heard that before. And they think, wow, like this girl or this guy is brilliant that he walked in with that. And so now everybody in the room is kind of gunning for it, you know, excited about what they're writing. And the odds of you walking out with a really good song have just increased a lot. Two of the biggest things is, Vocal preparation and digging for interesting, unique titles or concepts or angles of songs lyrically. So uh, those are the two. I mean, there's other things. It's just educating an artist, making sure they understand the business. Sometimes I'm even like, you know, putting artists with media training or showing them interviews from other artists. Like, look at the way like she carries herself or he carries himself in that interview. Look at how they walk in the room and say hello on that interview to the interviewer. Yeah. Look at how much confidence they carry. So you can't create confidence inside of somebody, but you can start planting those seeds of, you know, this is how people walk in a room. This is how you shake a hand. This is how you sell yourself in a room without it feeling like you're trying to sell yourself. Yeah. I, I wanted to kind of jump back. You mentioned, you know, like if you can impress the people in the room, then you're going to get a better song. It's like this funny thing that humans do that people do it's like you play to your competition and it's like you know if i'm mixing a song as a career mixer this is a horrible thing to say on my podcast if i'm mixing a song and the song's not good it's like i can only make it so good i can only bring my interest level is only going to be what it is and it's like you know if you're 
a hit songwriter who's hot and you're busy and a really uninspiring artist comes in that they have no ideas, that maybe they have no life experience, they have nothing to work with, then you're going to create the most basic, obvious song you can for that person because everybody's going to get, she's going to be like, oh, or he's going to be like, oh, that's perfect. And then you're just going to walk out the room. But if you can up your game, everybody plays up, which is, you know, if you're a super talented person, you don't play to your competition. But somehow, like most of humanity, outside the massively successful people that many people idolize, we all do it to a certain extent, which is, uh, you know, it's a weird, weird thing that people do. <laughs> yeah, I, I tell artists all the time, you know, if, if your vocal is unbelievable or the song is incredible or the idea for the song, the title, whatever is incredible. Like if you don't walk in with that and you get a generic song, it doesn't mean that the writer is a bad person. You know, like they could be sitting there saying, I really do want to write a good song for this person. Like maybe they're getting paid. You know, if you're a mix engineer, maybe you're getting, I'm making this up, but maybe you're getting a thousand dollars a song or more. And you know, obviously you want to do a good job. You want to deliver for people, you know, you want to, you're putting your name on it. You want it to be good, but you're so busy. Everybody's so busy in life that if you realize there's only so good, this is going to become, you're not going to kill yourself, you know, because it, you know, killing yourself is not going to bring it anywhere else. Right. But if you're a mix engineer and you hear one of the best songs you've ever heard that lands on your desk there's no way you're not going to go an extra mile because you know, like this thing really has life to it and legs to it. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. 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 Be, yeah. It, inspired people will, will go the extra mile. You get totally lost in finishing song or mix or, or whatever. If, if you just like really just are passionate about it, but here's a question that I've been asking a lot of people that have some label experience or A&R experience, or maybe have signed artists or whatever in today's era of like, you know, Spotify, Apple Music, there's just so many places that you can get discovered, so many places you can connect with your fans. How important is a record deal for a new artist? Do you think that people should be lining up for them or do you think people should shy away and really understand what their needs are? I think a record deal is incredible in a dream world. If you have a really good manager that knows the business, knows how labels work, knows the label system, you know, know, knows what the machine's like yeah, and how to help you as an artist avoid just getting put into the machine. So if, you, if, if you're an artist and you have a good manager, that's a very, very big benefit, especially a manager who's really going to care deeply. And then I think as a, as a help, I mean, at a certain point during a record deal process, once you're signed, you have got to figure out whether it's once you have a deal or before you have a deal, you've got to figure out who you are as an artist and you have to be just a little bit different than everything else on the radio. It doesn't have to be a lot different, but it, you know, something has to hit radio where it just feels like you quite haven't heard that before. Yeah. And, uh, that's a really hard thing to do. It takes a lot of digging. A good manager sometimes can help find that magic. I believe every artist has a treasure map inside of them. And it's about finding what is the sound, you know, what's the vibe, what's the sound, what's the energy like, you know, is it aggressive? Is it not aggressive? Is it pretty? Is it 
you know, is it Southern? Is it, is it rock? Is it all, is it, you know, like you could look at alternative. I mean, you could paint a thousand colors just in an alternative space. It could be acoustic. It could be, you know, keyboard driven. So I think knowing who you are, what the bullseye direction is that could set you apart as a guy or a girl or a band or whatever, where you just haven't heard exactly that before. Yeah. You know, like if you could find a lane that is commercial, but you know, like for example, like sometimes what I'll do is um, if I meet a female artist, sometimes I'll look at in that genre, the male artists, like polar opposite, a male artist that's big. You know, I, I'll ask myself, is there a female artist that's like that male artist that's blowing up right now? Like, like for example, um, this is not a perfect example, but like, you know, let's say like when John Mayer broke, you know, I'm the type of person that if I met a female and she could play guitar, I'd be like, there's not a female John Mayer. Mm, yeah. You know, like, like, could there be like a girl with a smoky voice who you know, is kind of bluesy, but pop and like, I mean, like that would be cool. Like, but so it's kind of thinking like, like, like there was years ago, many, many years ago, Lenny Kravitz was hot. And, um, I met this girl in my office. Like she was like six foot tall, huge Afro black girl, like looked like a model. And I was like, man, like how crazy cool would it be? Like this black girl with a huge Afro looks like a model with like an electric guitar in her hands, like kind of doing something like a Lenny Kravitz. Um, like there's no female Lenny Kravitz. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm always trying to think, is there, if you meet a guy, like, is there something that a female's doing that's blowing up where a guy's not doing that or vice versa? And labels don't always see stuff like that. Like yeah. so, sometimes that throws off a label. They'll be like, what, what are you talking about? Like, how could there be a female version of that? Like that's aggressive. Like that's a guy doing it. And also too, I'll say sometimes girls in music, which works obviously, but sometimes girls in music can be softer and there's, there's a lot more artists, female artists that kind of have a softer edge to them. And I think sometimes a way to differentiate yourself as a female, only if you have it within you, only if it fits you, but is don't be afraid to like be a little edgy and aggressive and show some power and show some strength because girls respond to that when a female artist comes out strong. Yeah. But a lot of, a lot of people in the industry or female artists are afraid of kind of going after aggressive things as a female. So I don't know. I'm I'm just always looking for things that, you know, angles, if you're an artist that make you just a little bit set apart and different, like if you're a female artist, what could you do that would make you different from every other female artist in your genre? True. That, that's great advice. I'm thinking about, I worked for a producer who will remain nameless, who was doing a lot of artist development. And a lot of the things that you were kind of touching on, like now that I think about it, I, those were like things we were going through. It was like, hey, try to write to this, try to write to this. Now, okay, imagine this version of this other artist that you love. And imagine taking this and that and putting it together. What does that do for you? But the thing that was interesting is, and I kind of had a question that I think maybe this relates to, is I saw... A lot of the artists get really frustrated because there was a lot of like searching for something that maybe wasn't like authentic to them. But at the same time, I also think that a lot of artists maybe don't understand. It's like if you play a show, you think you did a great job. But if somebody shows you a video of your show, you're like, oh, my God, we weren't that good. It's like you need that outside perspective. 
So going back to your treasure map, do you think that that treasure map is something that the artist has to unlock? Or do you really think there needs to be a trusted team around the artist that can be on the outside? Like, hey, when you do this thing, you blow my mind. I don't know if you're enjoying it, but I'm like, holy shit, I've never seen this before. You should explore that. What do you think about like artists that are a little frustrated in this like search, artist development search thing? I think for anybody, any human being, especially an artist, it's impossible to see your own painting when you're inside the painting. Yeah. And uh, like you can never stand in a gallery across the room and see your painting because you're inside of it. So it's very hard to see if you missed a corner or you missed the top right corner of the painting when you're actually inside the painting. Right. Very easy to see from across the room. So I think artists need wise counsel. I think I don't think any artist can figure every single microscopic thing out themselves. Yeah. I mean, like Kiss back in the day, it was their manager that had the idea for them to blow fire and breathe fire on stage. I mean, that, that's a huge part of Kiss yeah. today. Yeah. You, you look at the Rolling Stones. I mean, that tongue logo was done by a graphic designer, and they just took it and ran with it. But that's like their whole thing. You know, I mean, it's a big part of their thing. Yeah. And so nobody's going to figure out everything on their own. And I think, you know, my view is it's really, really, really unbelievably hard, crazy, crazy, crazy challenging to become Tom Brady. And most people are just not cut out for it. Most people are not going to want to work the way he works or study the way he studies. And most people don't like exploratory processes. It's true. I've worked with people in the past where we go down a road and we realize it doesn't work. And then we try something else. And one artist will say, you know, you're all over the place, Jason, because you don't know what you're doing. It's like, no, we're exploring. But that artist will walk away saying, I don't know what I'm doing because we tried something and it didn't work. The greatest artists, realize like you can't find the treasure you can't find your destination without making every once in a while a turn and realizing like you know we, we got a u-turn here yeah and uh the the greatest albums of all time were generally very tortured albums spent a long time making them a lot of money making them so i just think if you're not willing to try things and you're not willing to be stretched and you're not willing to be coached to be pushed if you can't have thick skin, the odds of you being a really, really big artist or being big in any field doing anything are probably not very good odds. I agree with that. Well, and it's also, you never know what's going to come from your exploratory adventure. It's like, all right, we're going to explore blues rock and then we're going to explore piano ballads. Well, maybe it's, it's going down both those roads that finds the thing. The thing was... I don't know what the combination of those two would be, but you had to go down both roads to be like, oh yeah, this is what it is. I'm glad we went down that total, quote, waste of time last year, but now we found out why we did it. So uh, yeah, and I think, I think it's really, it's, it's interesting. Um, and I, that was amazing insight. I appreciate you sharing all that. That's great stuff. Yeah. Uh, so before we go, I, I want to be courteous of your time. I got two questions that I ask everybody on the way out. Uh, so the first one is, was there a time in your career that you chose to redefine what success meant to you? Yes. I would say 15 years ago, I found 
for the first time ever through somebody mentioning it to me, I opened up a Bible and I started reading the Bible first time in my life and found God. And, um, I was, you know, an abused kid growing up, just broken family. I had a ton of issues. I was very broken inside. And so there was a part of my music journey when the door cracked open that it was so exciting. It was amazing. But there was a part of it where I wanted to prove myself to people. I I wanted to be somebody. And I thought like if you became successful in life or if you were a somebody that that's how you would gain acceptance from people and that people ultimately would love you. And I didn't realize that it was coming from a place where I wanted to be loved. And I didn't even know how to love people myself, sadly, but I wanted to be loved. And I thought that meant, you know, you, you become somebody or have success or so a lot of my focus, not all of it, thank God, but there was a part of my focus that was very success driven, status driven, but it was not in a healthy way. Mm, yeah. And it was it was not in a selfless way, it was a very selfish way. Yeah. So when that relationship with God started growing, one of the cool things that he showed me, and I'm a slow learner, so I'm still a massive work in progress in life, but uh one of the things he showed me was that this journey or any journey you're on in life, it's about learning to take the gifts you've been given and the talents you've worked to grow and figure out how you can serve people and love people well with those gifts and really care about another before you care about yourself to care about another over yourself. Yeah. And to think deeply about like the moves you're making in life and the the words that are coming out of your mouth. And is this really, is this really the best thing for this person I'm speaking to? And, or is this the best thing for me? Yeah. And so I think that's the biggest shift that's happened. And that shift, it's, it's been a growing shift, but it started about 15 years ago for me. That's awesome. Th- thanks for sharing. Yeah, I, a lot of what you just touched on is, is very much like kind of, uh, you know, where this show kind of comes from, where the, the idea that like, I don't know, there's this like mold of success in the music business, whether you're an artist or a songwriter, that you just assume like, I'm supposed to be this thing. And then it can be so frustrating and you like, can get almost cutthroat to try to be that thing and almost backstab, you know, people that you're working with at times. And uh, yeah, it just doesn't work out. It's not, it does make you happy. Cause and then in the end, if you're going to cry on a pile of money, what's it, I mean, yeah, what are you going to do? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Happiness exactly. is key. Uh, but before we go, last question uh, for you today is uh, what is your current biggest goal that you're able to share with us? And what is the next smallest step you're going to take to go towards it? I, I actually, I don't know, I've been doing this for 24 years. And I, I would just say that the only really big goal I have left is just, I just want, I just want to get better at what I do. I want to hopefully learn to love people better and serve people better. And um, I know every year or two, I get better at what I do. It's never stopped. And so that uh, helps me understand that while I'm alive, I'll never be perfect. So I think it's just the, the chase after perfection, not for me, but for me to be as perfect as I can for others. Yeah. So I'm delivering and serving and 
doing, making the right choices or decisions, you know, for people with people. So I, I think that that would be it. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. You gotta be, uh, you gotta be the best version of yourself to be helpful to anybody. Yes. You have to understand all that. Jason, this has been a ton of fun. Before we go, please take a moment to share anything you want, like any your where people can find you, any of your artists that you're really excited about, just as your little spot to share whatever. I would just say all, final thought is just for artists to be patient. Try to be patient. Th- this whole culture and world says now, 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 now. And that's not what where greatness is made. It's just you know, I always tell people like you only have one chance to show up as Cinderella at the ball. Don't miss a sequence on the dress. You know, don't look back with regret and realize that you forgot the slippers before you walked in. You got one shot to make an impression as an artist. And um, I always tell artists, you know, time should be their best friend. And you're only going to get better when you wait. You know, Steve Jobs waited three and a half years before he introduced people to the iPhone. And look, look what it did. And everybody in this business is in a rush. Record labels are in a rush to get things out. Everybody's in a rush to get things out. That doesn't serve the artist best, usually. So just be patient. And I also want to say, too, I'm not saying this to uh, move your emotions. Just want to give credit where credit's due. I've done a bunch of um, podcasts and interviews over the years. And I do feel, and I think I'm being accurate here, I, I do feel like your questions were if not the best, some of the best questions I've ever been asked. So um, <laughs> just want to want to honor you for that. Well, I, I appreciate that. I'll, I'll uh, I, I'm trying, I'm trying. This is only like number 75 for me, but yeah, I appreciate that. Thank yeah. you. But uh, Jason, I really appreciate you taking the time. We'll have to keep in touch. Um, thanks for sitting down and hanging out. Thank you. That's a wrap for episode 78. Thanks to Jason Davis for coming on the show to hang out. Thanks to Stephen Boyd for editing on this one. And as usual, thanks to all of you for listening. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider sharing with a friend, leaving a review, or maybe even checking out our Patreon or affiliate links. And finally, don't forget to join us over at the Complete Producer Network. Link for that in the show notes. And on that note, I will see y'all next time.